As we speak, there are new developments in the race for speaker, and we have some doubts about whether this Republican secret ballot plan is going to work for them the way they want it to. As difficult as as it is to talk about and as difficult as it is to know how to talk about it, we can't not talk about how we feel about violence in the Middle East. We want to be useful to you. So yes, we will talk about what's happening. We won't shy away from the horror of it, but we'll focus on how we are navigating the complicated feelings this generates and the difficult conversations taking place about this across the world, including in your own lives. And because it's part of what we do here, we'll talk about how it's playing out in U.S. politics and break down whether any of that is genuine or if it's all just people trying to use tragedy and terrorism to gain political advantage. Spoiler, it's a little bit of both. Finally, RFK Jr. is running for president, and ironically, both parties are socially distancing themselves from him. Welcome back to the podcast that helps you, the 54% of the country that votes for progress in every election, convince your conservative friends and family members to join our majority. This is Majority 54. This is usually the part where I say, Ravi, what's going on? Ravi is in India, and he is sick as a dog. You're pretty sick, yes? Yeah. Yeah, uh, the... uh I appreciate you taking the lead on this episode. I mean, I'll have stuff to say, but I, um, I didn't I will, want to miss. I will this do the here's so the news, here's what's about. happening parts uh, that you usually do because Ravi's really sick. Uh, he's in India and he's really really sick. So let's just start here. Um, we know. I mean, look, if people who are watching this right now, people who are listening to it on Thursday morning, you are keeping up, uh, no doubt. With well, actually, before we even go to the Israeli, uh, or the Israel and Hamas stuff, let me stop because since we have breaking news in the speakers' race, we're actually going to start there, and then we'll build up to talking about Israel and Hamas. So, what just happened in the speakers' race is there's an uh, this emotional closed door meeting that happened, and for quite a while they had no consensus, and eventually. Uh, I guess they decided they were going to have, and I can see where they're thinking this would make sense. They decide we're going to have a secret ballot vote. So behind closed doors, rather than have this all spill out on the House floor again, we're going to have a secret ballot vote. And then between uh, Jim Jordan and Steve Scalise, whoever gets the majority of the Republican caucus members, they're going to take that to the floor as the nominee for speaker and they'll proceed from there. Now, this vote was a 113 to 99 vote. Um, Since the vote, there have been people already who have said they're not getting, oh, by the way, Steve Scalise won. Uh, and there's already people who have said, no, I'm right or die Jim Jordan, right? Uh, Lauren Boebert has said this. Some guy named Max something who I've never heard of before said it. Uh, so here we go. So here's, uh, here's Lauren Boebert. She said, I'll be voting for Jim Jordan to be Speaker of the House on the floor when the vote is called. In conference, Jordan received 99 votes and Scalise received 113. We had a chance to unify the party behind closed doors, but the swamp and K Street lobbyists prevented that. The American people deserve a real change in leadership, not a continuation of the status quo. So just think about the fact that like, she's just like saying that these people she's in a caucus with are K Street lobbyists and the swamp. Like that's, that's an interesting stone to throw when you need everybody on your side to defeat Adam Frisch again, which she will need. But Ravi, what what do you think is likely to happen when they get to the House floor? Oh my God! Um, or will they even Scalise, do that today? I mean, I'm obviously as ignorant as I've ever been about this, but I do feel like they need Scalise. Like they 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 can't keep going. There's all these promises from. The holdouts that, oh, this is going to get solved by Wednesday. It's going to get solved by Wednesday. Well, this is it. You know, they're not going to unite behind Jordan. So, mm-hmm. 
And and honestly, like there are enough people there who privately will say common sense things, right? And I think they those people are really fed up. And so I think when they got into this room together, those people uh, were the dominant forces for once in the GOP, from what I understand. And that's why, like you know, the numbers are tilting in Scalise's favor. It's just it, it's the they they sowed their own seeds here, right? It's like they they tolerated just irrationality for so long in the caucus and now they're stuck with it right like they have no way to actually govern themselves at a time when it couldn't be more clear that they need to govern right they keep talking about immigration and they want to do something about immigration they got israel aid that's on the table ukraine aid uh you need to you know keep the government running and it's it's never been more clear that they're that they need to exist as a caucus uh and they can't even make that happen yeah, I mean, in addition to that, we're what now just 30 some days away from the next potential government shutdown. Um, so we had some some other tweets. Uh, Jeremy, you want to throw up the there's some stuff about like how many votes Scalise can actually lose on the floor and still win. So. Uh, so, okay. So here, Gabe Fleischer, who side note, interesting thing. Gabe Fleischer is a Georgetown student who has this great newsletter called wake up to politics. I met Gabe Fleischer when he was like a sophomore in high school in St. Louis, and he was just really into politics. And he started this wake up to politics newsletter that was at first like his friends and family. And uh, I, I was secretary of state then, and he was a nice Jewish boy from St. Louis. And I was a nice Jewish boy from Kansas city. So I did like one of his first interviews. And now it's fascinating to see like, He's got this newsletter. He lives in D.C. and he's like constantly quoted for breaking news, which I find real fun. But anyway, he said so far, uh, three House Republicans have said they plan to vote against Scalise on the floor. Uh, Salty says Tom Massey just said so. I guess that makes four. Um, so now you got Bobert, Miller, uh, Jimenez, uh, who's actually not voting for Jordan. He's saying he's going to vote for McCarthy, which is an interesting zag. So they're saying assuming you get full transportation, trans, uh, full participation. You can only lose four. So I guess they're at the max of what they can lose right now. Uh, so they're really on the razor's edge here. My guess is that what happens here, I mean, they're, the, the folks who are opposed um, to Scalise, because remember, Scalise is what, like number two in leader, or was number two in leadership behind McCarthy. You know, they are saying, and it's even trending right now, uh, that he is McCarthy 2.0. And I mean, it's not surprising. He kind of is. Um, it, I mean, certainly he was part of his uh, leadership slate. And what I see, I do think they will end up electing Scalise speaker because I, I, yeah, I don't think they have the same animosity built up against him. And more importantly, put the animosity aside, the Gateses of the world and the Boberts of the world, they don't have as much to gain in terms of online fundraising by opposing Scalise as they did McCarthy. McCarthy became an avatar for the status quo because everybody knew who he was. Not everybody knows who Scalise is. So they're not going to get much in their email fundraising lists out of opposing Scalise. So this is a leverage thing, right? I mean, isn't this just going to be a whole bunch of votes until Scalise gives a, a couple of these people some, you know, sort of uh, Benny that they want? Yeah, you got to imagine that McCarthy holdout is a Scalise person. So the person right. who's still voting McCarthy. So he's close. And he, from what I understand, and I, and I try not to totally understand criminology of the House, but from what I understand, he's much more liked than McCarthy was. He, you know, he was shot. I think there's a lot of sympathy votes. He's been really sick lately. Um, 
Oh, new development. Chip Roy is out on Scalise, according to Adam. Uh, that is a vote he probably needed. Um, the the other thing here is the speaker is a big fundraising position for members, like the rank and file, not the people who are doing like you know mega dollars and grassroots. And Scalise is apparently a really good fundraiser, from what I understand. That's at least according to Mike Murphy, um, who knows more about Republican politics than I do. Whoever it is, it has to be like an establishment fundraiser type. So I, they could talk about all the anti-establishment stuff that they want, but they need somebody who's going to be able to go out there and raise the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so they need somebody for that role. And then if you are one of the people who, like, if you're like Nancy Mace, who uh, nobody yeah, really what understands what she's yeah. about, but if you're a if you're a bubble vote, right? Like you're somebody who oh they're gettable, but not. Uh, but not, but not automatic. It's in your interest to initially hold out and to not make a big deal out of it, but to initially hold out because you might get a better committee uh, assignment. You might get all sorts of stuff. You might get a promise that the speaker is going to come to your district to help you raise money, or is right. going to do a fundraiser just for you in, you know, Houston or somewhere. So there, there are reasons politically to do that. Um, and it's also important to remember that when McCarthy was elected speaker, they went through several rounds and eventually Gates voted for him because he gave Gates something they wanted. So that's yeah. what I think is going to happen. The question is how quickly it happens. Um, and I think in terms of talking about this with other people, uh, I think it's important to like when you're talking about the disarray in the Republican Party is to zero in on how extreme both of these people have been in their views is to say, like, look, they couldn't agree between these two. And they've both been really extreme. Like Scalise has been really extreme, for instance, on guns. Um, and so is Jordan, I'm sure. But Jordan is best known for being really extreme on January 6th. And a lot of people believing being a part of January 6th in a major way. And he got 99 votes. <laughs> so uh, I think that's important to point people to. Yeah. Also, and worth mentioning that Trump threw his weight behind Jordan. And if he Mm-hmm. He's unsuccessful. That says something. I mean, I'm I'm past like attributing like any sort of major political loss to to Trump and his own party, but it just shows you that he's there at least is some appetite on the hill for 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 you know um, bucking Trump. Um, so a new update from Jape Sherman. Um, we're gonna pull this. Let's let's post this graphic up on the uh, the screen if it's available. Ah, let's see. This is big. So Jim Jordan just offered to nominate Scalise on the House floor. So he's getting behind Scalise, uh, and uh, and he's coming to the Capitol for a meeting with Steve Scalise. So that you would imagine like probably it, sews huh? it up. Yeah, it should probably yeah. get it done. Um, which making history here, Jason. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it also means that Jim Jordan. If you're if you're tired of seeing uh, jacketless Jim Jordan haranguing people for no good reason, uh, then sorry, Jim Jordan just got something from Steve Scalise yeah. where he's going to get to do that a lot more and play I mean, a much more problem. prominent role. It's a Scalise not learned from McCarthy. It's like just hold out if you want to be speaker, hold out for actually being speaker instead of this like coalition government stuff. Yeah, where you can't really get anything done, and it. it I fear, obviously knowing nothing about what happened behind those doors, that, you know, I'm hoping what he got is a really cool office, but I suspect it's something more than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suspect so too. I suspect, uh, yes. Um, all right, so- Did you that, know Clooney, by the way, is working on a documentary about Jim Jordan as his time as a wrestling coach? 
I I had heard that, which I think is very bad news for Jim Jordan. Yes, I mean it's yeah. uh, it's yeah. about uh, you know him covering up allegations of uh, sexual assault against yeah yeah so which is you know the actor strike does weird things to all of us. I'm here for it for Clooney. <laughs> yeah. He's like, hey, I'm gonna make content somehow. Yeah, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm gonna. <laughs> I'm going to strike a blow for humanity here. So, um, all right. So we went through the easier stuff to talk about here by going into the, the speaker's race and breaking some news. Uh, let's get into um, Israel uh, and Hamas, this conflict. Um, let's just start with Ravi. You were, are you supposed to be in Israel either right now or next week? I can't remember. Next week. But- yeah, it was supposed to be next week. And uh, obviously that's been canceled. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I have a lot to say, but you well, go first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're both like, okay. Um, so I'm not bucking it. I, I, I yeah, I'm yeah. come out hot on this. But it, I it's do. hard to know where to start. You're, you're the more Jewish of the two of us, so I feel like I need to give you the floor <laughs> first. Uh, no, let's. I think, I think that that's a good place for us to start, though. Is like, let's start with describing, and there will be people in the audience who immediately decide to make judgments based on this. Let's start with describing sort of our own feelings pre-existing when it comes to the conflict in the Middle East and Israel, right? And like yeah. where we're, what our starting place is. Um, I've gone on a bit of a journey in mine. Um, so I am, I am Jewish. Uh, Diana and I, um, back in 20, maybe 2007, I think, did a birthright trip to Israel. It's the one time that I've been there. Um, Diana has uh, actually um, an uncle and a cousin uh, and a couple of cousins who live not that far uh, from Gaza. So that's my personal attachment to it. Um, earlier, you know, let's say in the several years after first going to Israel, like I would describe myself as somebody who was very, very pro-Israel. Um, and I would still describe myself as pro-Israel, but certainly over the last several years, particularly with the direction that Netanyahu has gone and his government, um, it's become much harder. I'm, I'm still pro-Israel, but it's become much harder for me um, to sort out my feelings about it because I view Benjamin Netanyahu as an anti-democratic, uh, corrupt leader um, from the far right. And um, and I I worry very deeply about his policies generally. I, I, I have not been in favor of um, the expansion of settlements, for instance. Um, and I, and I just think he's too hard line and I, and I don't, and I don't feel good about the way uh, he approaches the Palestinians. Um, and, and it's, it's made me queasy. And so it's, it's made, it's given me conflicting feelings over the years. That said, with that all being context, um, and we can get into this in a second, obviously what happened the other day is completely separate from that. But before we say that, which is obvious, Ravi, you go, you talk about your own feelings. Yeah, it's weird. I almost have like the reverse. I, as a kid, you know, a student in in college, the first protest I ever went to was a pro-Palestinian protest. Like from the moment I heard about the conflict, I was like, whoa, this seems wrong. Uh, Like these people deserve a state. Uh, And I think it was only until, and I was pretty forcefully sort of, I would say, one side on on the issue until I worked at the UN and I saw up front how disingenuous a lot of the support for 
rebukes to Israel were. Like, there are, like, major human rights abusers like Sudan and Syria and whatnot, like, lobbying one resolution after another an investigation against Israel, and it just felt weird to me. It's like, Mm. well, there there was a clear anti-Semitism involved, and I looked into people's eyes and saw a group of people who weren't merely critiquing Israel for its human rights, but who were committed to its destruction. And uh, I also went to Israel and the Palestinian territories at that time. I've been there a few times since, and um, and and I came away continuing to believe in the in the rights and dignity of of the Palestinian people. They're some of the best people I've ever met. Um, I've been to the West Bank, obviously not Gaza, um, and you you feel for people uh, who don't have full sovereignty. Uh, at the same time, I think there's I've I've kind of updated my my history on it. Like in, in going there the first time, I read a bunch of books about the history and all that. And I realized, well, people, and you see this today, and, and I don't want to get too much into this yet, or maybe at all during this podcast, but we can, is like, you see two things on the internet right now about Israel. One is, uh, it's been a 70 year occupation or whatever. And then you hear 67 borders, right? Those are the two mm-hmm. things you see on the memes on the internet. Now, those two things are not the same thing. Anybody who says it's a 70-year occupation, whatever, they don't think Israel should exist because basically what they're saying is they're going back to the creation of the state of Israel and saying um, they don't think Israel should exist, like that they they should, they should never begin been given that land in the first place. And people are starting to say that explicitly all over the place. The 67 borders thing is, uh, is it just like where the sort of modern Israel has kind of been established, like the, the borders and the sort of bifurcated West Bank and Gaza, et cetera, um, which has gotten more pronounced over time with settlements and yada, yada, like is, is not contiguous anymore. But even there, like people say, oh, like we need to respect 67 borders and all that. But they neglect to mention that a couple of years after that was the Yom Kippur War, where Egypt and Syria invaded Israel and tried to wipe them off the map. Right. Mm-hmm. And so like, this is not like some kind of isolated thing where Israel reneged on some kind of promise. Israel has been repeatedly under existential threat. And so there are two questions. Do you think they should exist? I understand and respect people who think that that was a bad decision. Right. But that's too late. Right. It might've been a bad decision for us to annex Hawaii or to take California, or it certainly was a horrible human rights catastrophe. What we did to the native Americans. But, and maybe this is a good transition, if people left reservations and started massacring babies, teenagers, grandmothers, and Chinese workers, not to mention just anybody who deserves to live, and hunting people down, we would be against that even though we generally feel terrible about what's happened to the Native Americans. And the second thing is people are like, like there's sort of these armchair kind of activists who are like talking about land, this, land, that. Where are you sitting? Because I sit in Brooklyn where there were Native populations there before I was there who probably have a great claim to my land. I ain't giving up my apartment uh, for a you know multi-generational argument. Uh, I understand Israel is, is more recent, but uh, every single border in this world is ugly. In some way, something terrible happened to create it. And what we have decided, I think, as an international order is that we respect those borders. But that gets to like the sort of critique of where the government is. I'm with you on Netanyahu and certainly on the settlements. I think, you know, when I went there that one time, I had the same feeling I have now, which is I was looking out over these hills and the experts are showing me the expansion of settlements. And I'm like, this is absolutely wrong and it's counterproductive. It's morally wrong. Uh, but it's also counterproductive in ways that have become clear over the past week because Israel is in an, an, in a tenuous state and they've 
the Netanyahu government has allowed religious zealots uh, to dictate uh, where they're putting their resources and um, and are punishing the wrong. Like so much of the resources are going to the West Bank, where uh, where there is a like a really corrupt but somewhat functioning government, and where there is way less extremism. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll get off my sort of. No, soapbox, no you're doing great. Say is, it's just to say, like, <sighs> like. Everybody has become an expert on this. And as somebody who definitely spent a lot of time on this issue and does not call myself an expert, I, I this is even more frustrated than the people who were Ukraine experts or COVID experts or whatever, because what we were watching were people getting raped, killed, hunted down, et cetera. Americans getting killed, Americans getting kidnapped. And obviously we care about all people. Uh, and and there was false equivalency being drawn. That is just, I can't even say enough that is not true. Like, like I don't like the IDF, everything they've done. I don't like everything that the Israeli military has done. I certainly think the settlements are appalling. I think Netanyahu shouldn't be in office. Um, I think he's tolerated religious extremism in his cabinet. Thankfully, he's now formed a unity government. Um, there is just straight up falsehoods being peddled by people who are looking the other way at an obvious mass atrocity. Yeah, and... <laughs> It, the analogy I drew to the way people were trying to take this as a moment to say, okay, uh, let's talk about like taking this as a moment of like, this is like people who called the terrorist freedom fighters. I and mean, we're talking about like Americans, Americans, and let's be honest, mostly on the left who were saying yeah. this, what bothered me about it, there were many things that bothered me about it. But the point I tried to make, which I of course took a lot of backlash for was, look, we rightfully frown upon the idea of after a mass shooting going out and saying, look, the mass shooting, that's bad, but there are some things in this shooter's manifesto that I agree with, and I'd like to highlight those things. We frown upon that because it rewards violence and because a mass shooting is terrorism, and the point of terrorism often is to draw attention to some sort of cause, right? It's like the... it's. It's like violent protest is what it is, right? And you don't want to reward that. So the point I was making was I was trying to say, hey, it, this is one of those times where right after violence, it is not okay to use this to highlight your belief uh, you know, in this moment and to ignore the violence, right? Because that is, that is exactly uh, what people would do if they're trying to highlight the manifesto of a shooter now. We're going to take a break, and then when we come back from the break, we're going to get into the politics of this, both in the U.S. and what it looks like you know, in the Middle East going forward. This episode is sponsored by Roan. If you're like me, you understand the pains of finding what to wear. Most clothes are uncomfortable. They may be too tight. They never you know, actually fit your size because you know, a lot of us are not exactly small, medium, large, extra large. We're complicated. Sometimes when you find something you like, you can only wear it for a few hours before that important meeting or dinner, and then you have to change into something else. And everyone wants to dress their best. You want to look good at all times. And frankly, it's a confidence booster. So here's the deal. Men's closets were due for a radical reinvention and Roan stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection is the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible set of products known to man, and here's why. Roan helps you get ready for any occasion with the commuter collection, which offers the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, and polos. You never have to worry about what to wear when you have the Roan commuter collection. And here's some anecdote. I'm wearing my Roan pants right now. And last week I was at a wedding. I wore my Roan uh, button-down shirt 
to the wedding at a formal wedding and I will also wear it tomorrow when I just you know go into a coffee shop to have a meeting it's that versatile so it's time to feel confident without the hassle with Roan's wrinkle release technology wrinkles disappear as you stretch and wear the products it's that easy yeah I actually you know not so neatly folded that shirt in my bag for the wedding and I was able to take it out and automatically I was able to put it on. It looked like I had ironed it, but I didn't. You know, it's an inside secret between us. So with Gold Fusion anti-odor technology, you'll also be smelling fresh and clean all day on top of that. Roan is 100% machine washable, so you can dish the dry cleaner all together. We're on the move a lot, and the Roan Commuter Collection has never let me down. The versatility and overall comfort of the collection is undefeated. I absolutely love it. And even after I wear it all day, I feel super fresh because that Gold Fusion anti-odor technology. At that wedding, I was dancing up a storm, wore it, no problems. So the commuter collection can get you through any work day and straight into whatever comes next. So head to roan.com slash majority and use the promo code majority to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to roan.com slash majority and use the code majority. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Do you know that your temperature at night can have one of the greatest impacts on your sleep quality? If you wake up too hot or too cold, I highly recommend you check out Miracle Made's bed sheets. Inspired by NASA, Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics and makes temperature regulating bedding so you can sleep at the perfect temperature all night long. Uh, Diana and I have uh, been sleeping on Miracle Made sheets for about a week now, and we are a couple, there are many of them out there, who have uh, a strong distinction between our preferences when it comes to temperature. And so this has been kind of a game changer because I like it to be colder in the room and the only time that she's able to accommodate that is when she wears like socks and long pants and all that i mean she has to bundle up so it has been much better we're much closer to meeting in the middle on a temperature after over 20 years uh, because of miracle made sheets the sheets are infused with silver that prevent up to 99.7 percent of bacterial growth leaving them to stay cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets no more gross odors i mean I haven't had, I, I don't think there's a lot of gross odors in the bed, but perhaps if she were here, she would rebut that claim. Either way, don't have to worry about it because of Miracle Made Sheets. Go to trymiracle.com slash majority to try Miracle Made Sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo majority at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product. It's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash majority and use the code majority to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash majority to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode. Well, you know, Jason, how I'm always talking about like extremism on the left, and we have this running conversation where I spend a lot of time in New York, so I get exposed to a certain element, right? And I think this is one of those moments where that element has reared its head. Like there was, there's all this coverage of the DSA rallies, and I know these people. Like these are people who I, when in supporting candidates throughout New York City, I had to deal with the, their extremism on other issues, and. Uh, there also was a and, and there was this rally where they were, you know, essentially making fun of the people who were taken captive. Um, and 
Uh, there was, you know, people flashing Nazi symbols, and there were posters with the sort of paragliders on it, and it was like a kind of gleeful atmosphere, which is stunning and horrendous. Uh, and you know, in credit to AOC and other New York City leaders who had who had traditionally been uh, allied with DSA, uh, distanced themselves from DSA and their statements. Uh, there also was, uh, you know, when you think about the young people in this country, there were one college after another, including Harvard, where like a you know, something like a dozen student organizations, basically all of the identity-based groups uh, put a uh, statement out that blamed Israel 100% for what happened and didn't condemn the terrorist attacks at all. And I think this is a real problem. And it's a real problem for us on the left. There is a obvious and dangerous anti-Semitism on the right. We've spent a lot of time talking about that. But the anti-Semitism on the left is a reflection, I think, of a lot of other problems that exist on the extreme left. And I would... I would ignore it if it weren't influential to the moderates on the left or the traditional progressives, because I've seen this over the past few days, where there are a lot of people I know who, um, I know how they feel about this issue. They're afraid to basically say something obvious, which is, this was an atrocity, full stop, right? Mm -hmm. They're even afraid to say, hey, this was an atrocity and my heart goes out to the Palestinian people who are fighting for justice, but this is not how you get it or something, right? They, uh, Those people are generally getting intimidated. And I posted something on Instagram, I rarely do it uh, because I was kind of fed up with what I was seeing. And the amount of random messages, I shared one of them with you, but the amount of random messages I'm getting from people I didn't even know were that political who are espousing like very extreme positions. Like I shared with you like this, this, this message from a friend of mine who I, it was a doctor, and who's like basically talking 1967, but also talking about you know alluding to the fact that Israel basically didn't deserve this country, and then basically links to me a Rogan episode, being like, "You really need to check this Rogan episode," <laughs> you know. And I'm like, these people don't even want to do the work, right? They don't want to read about it. They don't want to visit the region if that's within their power. They don't want to sit down with people who have different views from them, right? And um, the Rogan thing I thought was really funny. I wrote back to her saying, "Well, you know what? From now on." Uh, every time you post medical stuff, because she's always posting videos and medical stuff, I'm just going to post, I'm going to reply to you with ivermectin and myocarditis and all this stuff, you know, mRNA and the grand conspiracies, because that's the amount of work you've done here on this issue. Yeah. I, uh, let's talk about anti-Semitism for a second, um, because it's not something I've had the privilege of not experiencing that much of it in my life. Um, my father and my, you know, my, my, dad's generation, my grandfather's generation, my grandmother, they experienced much more of it, like a lot more of it. Um, I have not experienced that much of it. Um, but I will tell you that even in, in posting about this, which I have a few times, um, I have done it with some reticence because I knew what was going to come back my way. And some of it uh, is scary. Some of it is threatening. Um, there's a lot of it, particularly on Twitter. Um, and and I'm not talking about what people may think I'm talking about, which is I think people think that I'm being very sensitive in anything that is a criticism of Israel, I'm characterizing as anti-Semitism. No, I'm talking about like the people who reply to me with just giant pictures of a nose, right? Or mm -hmm. giant pictures of my nose, which is pretty clearly like, okay, Jew, like, you know, or... Uh, people who just say, you know, all Jews need to be killed. They're all, you know, all that. So it's real. Um, and what's upsetting to me is, as you said, like most of that is coming at me now. It's, this has not always been the case. Usually I do get that. I get it from the right. Um, I'm getting it right now from the left. And I think I would characterize it as 
an anti-Semitism on the left that is based in, uh, I guess, a longtime opposition to Israel, but also it's sort of bleeding into a version, at least in the Western left, of anti-Semitism that comes out of a uh, a distrust of authority and a distrust of the establishment and a misconception often held through history that Jews are the establishment and that Jews uh, are the ones in power. Um, and uh, we're not. <laughs> um, and, you know, we're just not. Um, and other than in Israel, we are generally just not the people in power. Uh, there's not that many of us left um, over the course of history. There's, people keep trying to kill us and oftentimes successfully. Um, and so I feel like those two, that sort of sense of leftist populism is, uh, I'm not saying leftist populism equals anti-Semitism. I'm saying it is fertile ground to try and plant anti-Semitism. Um, yeah. and, and I find that frightening. Um, now. What I, I also I have a theory about that. Uh, but, but, oh, sorry. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, well, give me the rest. let me say before before you do, like, I want to balance that out by saying there's anti-Semitism to go around. I mean, yeah, just just in the fact that like the evangelical right is so unabashedly pro-Israel, like I always take that with a grain of salt because the evangelical right believes that when the rapture comes, it's going to happen in Israel, and that believers are going up to heaven and the rest of us like believers in Jesus are going up to heaven and the rest of us are staying, are staying on earth. And so like, I'm always pretty skeptical of the, I love Israel evangelical, right? Because they're like, Hey Jews, thanks for house sitting for us. Uh, you know, thanks for battling all the people who want to take it. We need this ground to be here for when Jesus comes back. So like, that's not exactly not anti-Semitism, you know? So yeah. anyway, go ahead. Well, here's my theory on it on the left, and it's probably less a theory because if people say it explicitly, it's like, why are all these identity-based groups, including the South Asian Law Student Association at Harvard and the South Asian Student Association lining up behind uh, these crazy statements? It's because of a solidarity politics that I think is really incomplete, right? Whenever they see somebody who looks like me, and then they see somebody who looks like you, they're going to they're gonna be with me. Right. Mm -hmm. That's how they do it. Right. Never mind the fact that people are more than, uh, you know, who's the, who's, you know, what shade. Right. If I'm darker than you, it doesn't make me any more right or wrong than you. And I understand the instinct. Right. But, but they don't go further to interrogate. Well, who is Hamas? Right. right. Not the Palestinians, but who is Hamas? Right. They're not the same. But in Gaza, that particular territory in a, in is a very imperfect uh selection process where the last time elections were held were the representatives of that pocket, right? Now, all the qualifiers with, you know, how fair can an election be under those circumstances, I get it. But they certainly enjoy a decent amount of popular support, including in our country, as we witnessed this past week, right? right. Now, who are these people, right? Well, they're dedicated to the destruction of Israel and Jews generally, right? They are, they are very comfortable flashing swastikas and engaging in blatant anti-Semitism. They're religious fundamentalists who want to create a religious state. Uh, they are militants. Uh, and as we saw, they have absolutely no sense of, of what it means to wage a war ethically, right? None. And, and I say that from... Uh, India, where like people will be like, well, there's no such thing as an ethical war. Well, I can only talk about what my family did, right? Which is, you know, not too far from where I am right now in India. My grandfather, when faced with British colonialism, gave up the family's business importing British cloths, th thrust the family into poverty, and engaged in a decades-long uh, effort to bring a nonviolent end to that conflict. 
Now, not everybody needs to be nonviolent, right? Uh, but uh, you can go from nonviolent to, say, attacking military installations, which was totally within their control. They crossed that fence. They knew where the military installations were. They attacked the military installations. We'd be having a much different conversation if that's all they did. But they decided to go further. They also, and this would have been horrific and wrong, could have just gone after military age people. Right, still would have been horrendous and terrible, but they decided to go further than that. They're, you know, they're taking and killing grandmothers, young people, uh, children. Right, like this is who people are lining up in, and they need to see beyond merely. Oh, I'm in solidarity with the person uh, who looks the right way for progressives. Like people, we can't essentialize people that way because people are more than their skin color. They're their beliefs about religion, democracy, freedom. Right, like those are other things that we take seriously. So, okay, um, before we get to the domestic, like, political brouhaha over this, I think it is important to say that we've clearly made the case for why there needs to, why Israel has a right to defend itself. And that, all that said, circling back to where I started with my skepticism and my concern about Netanyahu, what has me very queasy uh, right now as a Jew who supports Israel and supports, and supports Israel having a military response aimed at taking out Hamas, frankly. Um, I am really bothered by things like Netanyahu saying that his military objective in this instance is to remake the Middle East or is to change yeah. the Middle East. That bothers me. And it, it bothers me to see. Now, I know that they are giving, they're trying to give warnings before they take down buildings that have, and I know that Hamas uses human shields. But here's the thing about being, for lack of a better term, the good guy or attempting to be, to hold the moral high ground is that you don't actually get to make excuses like the other side is using human shields. That's what makes it so hard right. to be, to, to walk a moral course is, and, and I, I recognize, like, believe me, I get that the tactical military difficulty of trying to go after a population of people, a very small group of people, the leadership of Hamas uh, and, and the militant uh, parts of Hamas that is embedded within millions of people in a very crowded area. I understand why that's difficult. I understand why their tactics make it much more difficult. And I understand why, as a result, you're not able to let more than, like in this new agreement, 2,000 people through into Egypt at a time because you can only vet so many at a time. I understand all of that, but you're still met with the moral quandary of if you take what is militarily, militarily, not necessarily ethically, but militarily an understandable course, which is cutting off fuel, food, water, electricity to a place in order to isolate Hamas, you still have to deal with the reality that yes, you're dropping leaflets. Yes, you're trying to put out warnings so that people will relocate. Now they have to relocate within the very area that you are, you yeah. are, uh, attacking. It's not like they can get out of Gaza, which has to be taken into consideration. If you have not had electricity in that place for some time, then people don't have their phones. They don't have the yeah. ability to get those warnings. These things have to be taken into consideration. And then when you you talk about you're launching a ground assault, I mean, we're talking that's going to be pretty awful in both directions. And so I get very nervous when somebody like Benjamin Netanyahu says that this that his objective is to change the Middle East because that feels a lot bigger than responding to and deterring a horrible terrorist attack. And that yeah, makes I, me uncomfortable. I'm with you. I don't trust him at the wheel either. And it's really hard to talk about. Um I, I'm a little bit 
uh, I would say a smidge more optimistic now that there's a unity government and the defense minister is the opposition mm-hmm. leader. Yeah, I agree. But, but uh, absent the hostages, if I'm sitting in that room, right, and I look clearly not a military leader, but just trying to understand the psychology of the situation. If I'm in that room and there's no hostages, I'm like, let's take our time. Like, mm-hmm. let's 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 maintain the high ground because so much of this is about the narrative, right? And what we need to do is make sure that the world knows what happened here, and that's the the most effective thing we could do against Hamas. That's what my relatives would have done here, right? Like, that's that that is like the nonviolent way of dealing with it. Um, and sure up your defenses because clearly Netanyahu and his government and and the defense ministry like have a lot of things to answer to and and, and need to clean up like their own internal defenses, right? Uh, now. With the presence of hostages and a ticking clock, it complicates things, and that's where I don't know the answer to it. I, like you, uh, am very uncomfortable with a an invasion. Uh, I understand why they have to get their people back. Uh, if it were my kid, I'd want them to go get their kid, or for my you know friend. Um, I get that, uh, and I think that makes it impossible to do something um, like what I was describing, but. Uh, and I'm not like a pacifist, like only, right? I'm like strategically so in this case. Obviously. Yeah. But I think that would have been the smart thing to do if they were, if they weren't in this position of having their people uh, in the grip of lunatics. Like you watch those videos of them taking people away. I mean, like, this is the thing is like, I don't want to live next to anybody who thinks those people are reasonable and are, right. you know, like th- those are just true. You've seen bad guys before. Like those are just bad guys. Those aren't freedom fighters. Mm-hmm. Those are those are sociopaths. And what I worry the reason it worries me is because I agree about the urgency when there's hostages. But what worries me about Netanyahu, and I'm not saying this is my conclusion, I'm saying what is worth monitoring and continuing to be skeptical about is Netanyahu has had an agenda for a long time, and that agenda could easily be described as changing the Middle East forever. And you know, to the benefit of Israel, of course, and to the benefit of Israel's security. But still, that that would be a good description of his political philosophy and his aims. And if his sense out of this is that this is some sort of opportunity to do that, then that could be a conclusion he reaches independent of the urgency of the... And that's what worries me. Um, is the, And I'm not saying that's the case. I'm saying that is worth watching. And, and as, a, as a, a Jew who supports Israel... That's the sort of thing that I feel a responsibility to keep an eye on and potentially comment on over time. Um, now, we promised we'd get into the domestic uh, side of um, the politics here. Robbie, are you frozen or are you still there? Let's see. You are frozen, so you'll come back. But while you do that, I will describe the domestic politics that are playing out here. Um, we can start with uh, the, the first reflex of... Um, of the right wing in the US was to claim that this is all the fault of Biden because he released dollars for humanitarian purposes to Iran in exchange for the release of prisoners. And these were, you know, these were quarantined off to be used exclusively for humanitarian purposes. And it was extremely recent. They're trying to pretend, Ted Cruz and others, that this money was what financed the operation. Now, clearly, an operation of this size was financed and planned a very long time ago. And that was a very recent event. So that is total crap. Um, there's nothing to that, and it is, it is ridiculous. This has, if you're going to blame any sort of political decision or any sort of political moves on this, which you shouldn't, but if you were to, 
what would precipitate something like this becoming more urgent for Iran would be their uh, their desire to interrupt the normalizing of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel, which was coming and now has clearly been put off and disrupted. Um, so the idea that this could be blamed on the deal that Biden made with Iran over releasing prisoners is wrong. Now, the left is kind of implying that the lack of a speaker um, has made it more difficult for the Biden administration to send aid to Israel. I think that is a premature criticism because the Biden administration has not yet uh, fully outlined the aid package. Um, you know, they're still talking about what that is. And it appears that we're going to have a speaker before they would. So I just think in the interest of being honest, I think both of those things are, are BS. Now, that said, here's what's really happening, which is people like Josh Hawley jumping on and trying to use this as an opportunity to disengage the United States from Ukraine in order to uh, basically do Putin's bidding. I mean, he tweeted that all of the aid that is being sent to Ukraine should immediately be transferred to Israel, um, which assumes, one, that we can't afford to do both. We're the wealthiest nation in human history. We can. And second is a naked attempt to uh, pit those who support Ukraine against those who support Israel. And you could even argue is an attempt to, in some ways, divide the U.S. Jewish community, um, given you know, that there is a, a, great a great deal of Jewish support um, for the fight in Ukraine. Um, so I think that's pretty sick and, uh, and pretty cynical. And I think it's, it's worth being on the lookout for because you're going to see more and more of it, an opportunity to say you have to choose between Israel and Ukraine. Mm. Well, with that, let's uh, take a break and hear from our sponsors, and then we'll come back and, and hear from your favorite independent candidate, Jason. Our next partner is AG1. It is the daily foundational nutritional supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because initially I, I wanted to try something other than a multivitamin. I'd been taking a multivitamin for a long time uh, for various reasons. I'd read different things about why you should maybe try and move on from just a multivitamin approach. And then the other thing was I thought, well, this is a drink. And if I if I drink this first thing in the morning, it'll help me get a head start on being hydrated for the day. And that has totally worked in both of the I, I no longer take a multivitamin. I take this. It works better. Uh, and when I am consistent about drinking it in the morning, it does help me get a, a jump on hydration. Now I have two kids. Every once in a while, I don't get a jump on hydration because I don't drink it until like late morning, early afternoon. Um, but either way, it ends up working great for me. Uh, and I suggest drinking it in the morning, but like you can, everybody does it at different times. I think Ravi sometimes drinks it twice a day. Um, this stuff is great. It's great for you. It tastes good. And once you start uh, with AG1, you're, you're not going to want to quit. You're going to take the travel packs with you when you travel. You're going to do the things that Diana and I do with regard to AG1. So if you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash majority. That's drinkag1.com slash majority. Check it out. All right. Uh, as we go into this discussion of RFK Jr. announcing his campaign, his independent campaign for president, uh, why not just start with RFK Jr. announcing it? Uh, here goes a barn burner of the beginning of a speech. Please enjoy. I need my speech. Uh, you can, 
You can't read anything. What? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's upside down. It's upside down. It's upside down. Mm-hmm. All right, so um, this is why, just a tip for anybody out there, if you're ever going to work off a teleprompter, have with you a hard copy of your speech <laughs> because it's possible that uh, it could be put on the teleprompter upside down or not at all. I just thought that was kind of a fun way to start. Uh, so, all right, RFK Jr.'s candidacy. Um, I, Ravi, you go. I've talked about where I yeah. think he's coming from in the past, but you go. I mean, there's a the debate is obviously does he help or hurt Democrats, right? That's that's where it comes down to, and that's honestly all I care about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's tough because you have Cornell West, who I actually do think is trouble for us because he he speaks to the 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 kind of fringe that we just discussed, right? Like he he has been pretty extreme on the issues that we talked about already, right? Uh, and he's like a figure that appeals to the postmodern left, you know, the people who are like, you know, like to trade in sort of fancy theories, uh, grand sweeping, sweeping theories and, and, and talk, um, about neocolonialism and shit like that. Like that's like the people he's going to speak to now. Do I think that's enough to be dangerous? I don't know. I mean, we're winning these things every year, very slim margin. So every vote counts. Um, but, uh, the second he's like a better version of Jill Stein, right? Like he's just a more compelling version of Jill Stein. Um, the I think RFK Jr. The data is mixed on this, and the anti-vaxxers obviously are going to love him. And I I think you know there are more of them on the other side than us. But man, I still think those anti-vax Trumpers are still going to pull for tr- Trump over RFK Jr. Like it's not like they're they're anti-vax identity is subservient to their identity as MAGA people. I agree. And I, I, what I think is so interesting is that Newsmax and Fox spent a lot of time propping up RFK Jr. when they thought he was going to run in the Democratic primary against Biden. Um, they, and they, they sort of created the monster because they were the only people who would give him any airtime. And now that he is announced as an independent candidate, the Republicans are like, oh no, what have we done? And they are trying to put Frankenstein back in the box as fast as they possibly can by running a lot of attack ads saying he's not a Republican, he's not a conservative, he's a liberal Democrat from a liberal Democratic family. They're trying to put him back into the left side of the political box as fast as they possibly can because they realize he's actually more of a threat to the right probably than he is to the left. Now, the point of all that is that he, they were the only ones who would give him airtime. And a little, right. a little story about that that I think is evidence of that is um, a couple of weeks ago, when you and I were down in Austin for the Tribune Fest, I don't think I got a chance to mention this to you that, right, I don't think you were sitting with me when this happened, um, when uh, a contributor who will remain unnamed from CNN came up uh, and was, who I know, who was talking uh, to me. Um, and he was telling me a quick story about the night before when he was at the gym in Austin. He went to the gym, and I guess the hotel we were staying in, or he was staying in, gave like a, a free guest pass to Gold's Gym or something. So he was over there, and he's a relatively uh, recognizable figure. He's on there pretty often, but as a contributor, not as a reporter. And out of the blue, RFK Jr. walks up to him, uh, and, he, and he's in oh, there Oh, I didn't lifting. realize he was bouncing around there while we were there. Well, 
he wasn't even there for Tribune Fest. Uh, I don't even know what he was there for because he said uh-huh. to this to this person, he was like, hey, I don't know your name, but you're on CNN. Now, the next thing that like most normal people in social protocol would do is say, I'm sorry, what is your name? My name is, <laughs> right? Right. But at no point during this exchange did he ever ask for the name. What he did was, he said, I know you're on CNN, right? And then he launched into like a five-minute tirade about CNN refusing to put him on and asking him to go to his bosses at CNN and have him put on. And then this person responded, like got, he got to the end of this, and this person responded and said, you know, I actually teach a course, a college course, and right now we're, we're focused on uh, your father, and I'm doing an entire segment on your father. Now, again, there would be a more expected social protocol, you know, some sort of uh, like acknowledgement of this nice thing that has been said. All he said was, yeah, okay, I really need you to focus on getting me on CNN. I don't understand why you people won't do it, why you believe in this censorship. And then he left. Like at no point did RFK Jr. even learn the name of the person he was talking to. <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know, man. I just thought that was a story worth sharing. It, it doesn't surprise me that RFK Jr. treats everybody like the help. Uh, exactly. It, you know, this is like this is why nepotism is bad. Uh, well, okay. I think that's probably all we need to say on that. Do you have anything more on there? We can talk about. No, one just for us. simply that I think clearly RFK Jr. Uh, has been identified as more of a threat to the right by the right than it is to the left. And that's why you're going to see a lot of attack ads now against RFK Jr. So um, before one for us, I have a grab an oar, which is something we haven't talked about at all this episode, but it's just want to shift gears a little bit. It's not getting much, much uh, attention, but there was a massive earthquake recently in Western Afghanistan. And given the governmental situation with the Taliban there, it's very difficult for aid to get in. It's very difficult uh, for international aid to really engage um, because of the difficulty that comes with working with the Taliban. But the International Rescue International Rescue Committee is a group that I've worked with in the past in my Afghan work, but has done a tremendous job of maintaining a presence in countries like Afghanistan, even after there are authoritarian regimes in charge, in order to uh, exclusively provide humanitarian aid. So uh, I would encourage folks to consider supporting that aid, and they can just go to rescue.org, and you can click around and you can find a way to focus on um, aid to uh, Afghanistan. I mean, there are whole villages that have been leveled in Western Afghanistan um, because of this earthquake. And this hasn't gotten a lot of news um, because of everything else that's going on in the world. But with that said, you're in India and you're very sick. Uh, yeah. Well, b- before I was sick, I was in Mumbai uh, the past few days. And I don't know if, what you know about Mumbai. There's a great city, um, a book called Maximum City. It's all about Mumbai. It's a really good book. Um, I think it won the the National Book Award. Uh, but Mumbai has more people in it per square mile than anywhere on the planet. Hmm. And it, it is just a fascinating place. I wouldn't say it's for me. It is, you know, it makes New York look like, you know, Abbeville, Alabama. Um, it is as packed as anything you've ever seen in your life. And I have just, it's a miracle that place functions on a daily basis. Uh, <laughs> but uh it 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 is just really interesting to i mean this is as far east as i've ever been and i'm currently in delhi right now which is a very different feel to it so delhi is a lot more spread out there's more like tree lined blocks um i dragged myself uh this afternoon over to sit down with uh the former basically the david axelrod of the previous government essentially and and spent the afternoon just interviewing him about the state of things here and um, and, uh, and also giving him whatever virus you currently have 
Yeah, I know. I think it's probably <laughs> going to be responsible for taking out the the leadership of the Congress Party in India. Uh, but um, it's I'm excited about this project. Can't really say more about it right now. But it, it just like in, it's just like a wild way to learn about this country that I obviously have such a like family connection to, but have personally not been here. And I I grew up with my mom, not my dad's side of the family. So I'm like I have this name, and every time people here learn my name, they're just excited to talk to me. And then I mm-hmm. feel like I'm letting them down because I don't even pronounce my own name correctly. Um, but uh, yeah, it's and I'm 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 going to my dad's. My dad's in town, and and I'm staying an extra week. The week I was going to be spending in Israel. Oh, your dad's, my dad's. Your dad's in India too. Yeah, he's going to be in town, and oh, we just wow. worked it out today. And we're going to go to my dad's village where he grew up. He hasn't been there in thirty years. He grew up very That's remote amazing. Yeah, that's very hard to get to. So, um, and I think I'll probably use some of it for the podcast because my dad has, as India has turned, uh, my dad has turned. Uh, Long time yeah. listeners would know that. So, it it should make for both like an interesting um, conversation for the audience, but also just like it would be cool to see that for my dad. He's never hasn't been there in thirty years. So, that's yeah. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, well, um, you know, usually we keep the one for us kind of light, but what I will encourage people to do here is uh, if you have, uh, you know, you probably do have people in your life who are Jewish, you, people in your life who are Palestinian or Arab and, ha- and feel a, a deep connection to the region uh, in whatever way that is, or just folks who are triggered by seeing this sort of thing on the news. It's normal to feel stressed about this. Like the thing I would say is like reach out to those people because um, I can tell you that for myself and for my Jewish family members and friends, it's a very stressful time. Uh, but also, uh, I would just encourage anybody else who is bothered by what they see in the news to not hesitate to go get help uh, if you need to. It don't, you don't have to have a connection to it. Um, you know, I had a I, I had a VA therapist appointment this morning, so uh, it is normal to not feel good uh, when stuff like this is in the news. So it's okay to address it. So. Um, Thank you, uh, everybody, for listening. Uh, As always, uh, remember to subscribe to Majority 54 wherever you listen to audio podcasts. Just search Majority 54 and please leave a five-star review. Thank you to the Midas Mighty. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today.